Welcome to the Get Healthier Podcast with Rena Jadhav, who's on a quest to uncover breakthroughs and cures in living longer, healthier, and happier. Genetic testing, stem cells, rattling, talking to Silicon Valley geniuses and the best doctors in the world about the hottest products and programs to make you live an amazingly joyful life. Are you ready? Now, here's your host, Rena. Hey everyone, it's Rena Jadav here, founder of Health Boot Camps and host of Healthier. So today we're talking about what's making our kids sick. And on the show, we have two amazing, amazing scientists, researchers, doctors. I want to welcome you, Dr. Michelle Perrow and Dr. Vincent Adams, who are the authors of What's Making Our Children Sick. Welcome, doctors. How are you? Well, thank you for having us. Glad to be here. Yes, thank you for having us, Rena. It's good to be here. How did you decide, or why did you decide to write this book? Okay, well, um, I'll start with, uh, and then let Vincent jump in. Uh, Rena, I have been on a no journey for um, taking care of children for nearly four decades now. And about um, 23 years ago, I had a son, he's 24 now. My son had some health challenges and I had a serendipitous encounter with a homeopath. And she's an MD homeopath and she literally changed my son's life and she changed uh, the path of my own career. I studied homeopathy and eventually got into integrative health. That world led me into some other types of people doing activism, stopping the spray of pesticides about 12 years ago. And these moms um, here in Marin County in Northern California, um, needed a pediatrician on their board. And I reluctantly, fighting, kicking, and screaming, joined in, you know, small kids, medical practice, the whole deal. And these gals literally transformed Northern California with stopping the spray against a light brown apple moth, which actually turned out not to be a pathogen. But these gals, one of them in particular, asked me about GMOs, Rena, and I didn't know about GMOs. And she forced me, and, and very tactfully, said, you've got to read Jeffrey Smith's book, mm. Seeds of Deception. Mm-hmm. And this was in 2006. And when smart women speak, I listen. I read that book. And through Jeffrey's amazing, well-researched book, I learned about the work of a researcher who first studied GMOs in Europe named Dr. Arpad Pusti. And when I understood his work, light bulbs went off in my head to understand the relationship of what about genetically modified food and the rising health crisis that I was starting to see in children, which I first noted about 15, 20 years ago. And it all came together and it literally transformed uh, my clinical practice. And then I wanted to write a book. (laughs) What about you, Vincent? Yeah, so uh, my path was not so uh, direct as Michelle's to this book. I'm a medical anthropologist by training, and I've written many books. Um, This was my seventh book, I think. Um, And I spent many, many years working in Tibet, uh, working with Tibetan medical doctors on issues of safe motherhood and alternative approaches to health and healing that the Asian medical systems offered. And my field was one that had always been sort of positioned in some um, critical relationship to mainstream medicine, I would say. Uh, And so we were very, I was always very interested in and have taught for many years on the politics of healthcare, uh, the politics of knowledge around healthcare. And when I met Michelle about, I guess it's around five years ago, almost six years ago now, 
uh, we started taking walks together. She was my neighbor. And oh, I started wow. hearing her tell me these stories about these sick kids. And some of the stories really rang true for my own children as well. And I thought, this is a really interesting story. Um, she's talking about this rising epidemic of children with chronic disorders that aren't being helped by mainstream medicine. And I thought there's something really interesting here. And there's a story to be told about integrative medicine. That was the thing I first thought I would want to write a book about. I was not so on the page with her about the idea that genetic modification of foods had anything to do with the health crisis. I was skeptical like a lot of people. And when I first went to the internet, I just thought like a lot of people do, yeah, this is kind of a conspiracy theory and I'm not sure I believe it. However, when I started to dig in and when I started to interrogate Michelle a little bit more about the science that this was based on, and I realized how controversial it was and how fascinating it was, but also how scary it was. Because if any of these controversial sciences were actually right, then we were facing an epidemic. And so at some point I decided, well, this is a really interesting topic as well. And I remember on one of our hikes, I said to her, you know, this would make a great book. And she said she'd been wanting to write a book for many years. And so I said, okay, I think we can do this. And I began interviewing her on our hikes. And I began, uh, we set up to interview a lot of her patients. I started digging in deep on the science and digging in deep on the context of the crisis that we were facing, which was not just about GMO foods and pesticides, it was also about the crisis of medicine and the inability of mainstream medicine to really deal with, one, the problem of food in relationship not to the, the normal culprits, but the foods that we thought were healthy that may not be because of the pesticides, but also the models that are being used in medicine to take care of people that just weren't able to get at the root causes. And so that's how I ended up working on this book together <laughs> with Michelle. And it's been a great, great experience. And thank God you did, because I think this is a book that's much needed at this time. You know, you talk about it being sort of a chronic epidemic of children's illnesses. Talk a little bit about what are we seeing and how bad of an epidemic is it? Do you want to start, Michelle? So, yeah, I certainly can talk about that. I, I live it. I walk the walk. I see it almost daily because I still do a clinical practice. And I can tell you, since Vincent and I wrote the book, which we finished about a year ago, over a year ago, things have gotten worse. And it's manifested in clinical medicine just every day. It's, it's not a day that doesn't go by that I see some very alarming kids. And um, as Vincent mentioned, without the tools to manage them. So what we have is a situation where one out of two kids now has a chronic disease. And that in itself is shocking. So that's about 51% of children. And, and by definition, chronic actually means a disease that happens for more than three months and has no treatment in Western medicine. That's the actual definition of chronic, just for uh, your listeners. The um, types of illnesses on the rise, which is essentially all of them, I could start with neurocognitive disorders, which are the types of diseases like autism, autistic spectrum disorder, are now affecting one in 34 boys, one in 58 children. And when we wrote the book, it was one in 43 boys, one in 68 kids. So it's gotten a bit worse. Um, asthma, very common, one in eight uh, American children that are um, white, one in six African-American children and Latino children is kind of varied. Um, if you look at issues regarding food allergies and Vincent and I spent a lot of time talking about food in the gut, 
um, in the book. There's some really good chapters. Food allergies are very interesting because there are the severe types of food allergies, which are affecting about one in 13 kids, and the low-grade chronic food sensitivities or intolerances, which are debatable in Western medicine, are affecting about 40% of kids, as far as we can tell. But in my own clinical practice, um, of kids with co chronic complex health issues, I saw 95% of my patients had evidence of chronic food issues, intolerances, or sensitivities. And we can talk about I think it's very important to talk about mental health issues because mental health issues in Western medicine, it's the uh, brain is cut off from the rest of the body at the neck as if these two things aren't related. And they are uh, affecting a shocking 46% of kids with diagnoses such as anxiety and depression, OCD, eating disorders. I can bring in sleep disorders that are rampant that are now affecting children as well. And so this extends into endocrine issues, autoimmune, obesity, and, and we go into the book and write in our introduction about all these statistics. It's all science-based. We, Vincent and I, I think have like 260 citations. We really were careful to uh, document scientifically what we were reporting on. And so by definition, you have to understand the definition of an epidemic is under one in a hundred people. And we clearly have matched that in the majority of childhood issues. And so this is what we're looking at now as parents, as clinicians, as educators, um, et cetera. So I was interviewing Dr. Kristen Kamel, and she mentioned to me that she saw her first child case of MS. Uh, so we're starting to see episodes of, or diseases like MS that are showing up in children, which is unheard of. What age group are you seeing kids having chronic illnesses? Kind of what's that age group like? So the age group is, it's all over the map. The most common uh, is, the most common ages that we're seeing are really, um, you know, I'd say they start entering kindergarten. But the truth be told, it's way, about five years old. It's way younger than that. And I have now, um, the, there are what we call soft signs when kids are born already with issues that are, are already concerning. So for example, um, I'm seeing kids, clearly infants, who are covered head to toe in eczema. We have a kid like that in the book. Um, but babies are born with severe eczema within the first few weeks of life. There are babies who are unable to tolerate any feeding, breast milk, anything that mom's eating. Moms are on these severe uh, food restrictions, and these babies are suffering with severe crying and stuff like that. Um, constipation starting in infancy, soft signs. Um, babies with sleep disruption and can't get themselves to self-soothe or these rocky stormy patterns of behavior starting in infancy. So we have these soft signs that these kids are not right early, don't know quite what to do with them. And then as children get older, they start to evolve into more um, classic clinical diagnoses um, later on in life. But there are soft signs in infancy. I, it, we're seeing it earlier and earlier. All the uh, autoimmune stuff, I, um, my biggest fear right now is if you know autism is not bad enough and chronic uh, infection are pandas and autoimmune diseases related to the brain. So this autoimmune issue, like the MS that you are bringing up, so rightfully, Rena, is very concerning, and we're now starting to see it more and more. Yeah, when you see it in a ten-year-old, I think it's horrifying. Yes. Children should be out having fun, not worrying about health issues and prescriptions and meds and, and, and the rest of it. Correct. So what is causing this? What started this? 
Well, I'm going to let Vincent so, jump in here. Sure, and then you can follow up because you'll have more to say, I'm sure. But, you know, like the way we talk about it in the book, first of all, we do a lot of case studies in the book. So the goal is to have readers be able to identify with some of the stories that maybe are familiar to their own stories as well. And, and I would just add as a footnote on the last comment that what Michelle was talking about it, of these things showing up in infants, I mean, she also did, does point out, and we talk about it in the book, that parents who are exposed before or during pregnancy to some of these problems, you know, produce children who are going to have problems mm -hmm. as well. Makes sense. And there's a lot of discussion of the, the problem of epigenetics and genetics in the book, but in a way that is, is legible to the average reader. So, I mean, what we say in the book is that it's, it's probably the case that our kids are getting sick. And it, by the way, it's not just kids. I mean, adults are getting sick too, but kids, as Michelle has often want to say, are gonna show the signs very early. Their cells turn over faster, so they're likely to show the symptoms earlier and possibly get sicker. Plus they're starting at a younger age, so they're gonna have the sicknesses for longer. Anyway, people are getting sick from exposures to a lot of things. The chemical exposure level, um, endocrine disrupting toxicants, things like PCBs, phthalates, parabens from the built environment in the household, um, even from the hygiene and beauty projects, products that are in use today by a lot of people also have an impact on health. So these are, there's a sea of chemicals that are out there. We in the book just focus on one possible route, and that is the food route, because it's the one thing that people put in their mouths throughout the day or three times a day or several times a day. And it's um, the most potent source of health and disease. So um, we specifically focus on the problem of modern food. And what we mean by that is modern industrial food. So since the dawn of agriculture, men have been, humans have been changing the way we grow things and the DNA of food. That's without a doubt. But what we did in the 1970s is we start, some companies started to figure out how to modify the DNA of plants in two ways that are the most prolific of the crops that are grown today. One of these was to create a plant, a seed, that could withstand the spraying of Roundup or the use of glyphosate, which is the active ingredient in the herbicide Roundup. The second type was a modification that would enable the plant to become a pesticide in its own right. That is inserting the DNA, the protein that would kill insects into the plant itself. Well, originally these companies thought that these would be safe for humans. One, glyphosate they thought didn't have an effect on human cells, that it was only effective on plant cells because they have the enzymatic pathway uh, that humans don't have. Well, we now know that our microbiome does have that enzymatic pathway. And so the question about whether this product, the, the glyphosate in the Roundup, and in other herbicides that have glyphosate, is having an impact on the gut is huge. And we take it up very seriously in the book and go into the evidence for the harms of glyphosate and the risks of glyphosate that is available now. The other type, the inserting of the pesticide or the thing that will kill insects into the plant itself, it's a, it's a technique that has been used historically by farmers to spray on plants that would kill insects. Now we, the GM technologies enable farmers, enable companies that make these seeds to insert the protein right into the plant itself, which means you can't wash it off. It's in the plant, no matter what part of the plant is eaten, it will have this protein. And the way it kills insects is it goes in and pokes holes in the lining of its gut and, and kills the insect by way of a kind of septicemia. 
The assumption on this one too was that it was not harmful to humans because the pH of the human gut is different from that, from that of an insect gut. We now know that the active, activation of the protein, which is what is required of that pH of the insect gut, doesn't matter because these proteins are pre-activated in most of the crops that are grown with them. So we, there are studies out there that show that there, there's plenty of evidence to show that Bt is also a likely harmful agent to humans. What the way we approach it is through this whole model of how the gut is a new piece of the puzzle that enables us to connect the dots between the science and the evidence that's out there from the, the um, clinical world of sick kids. Um, and you know, so part of what we have to do in the book is explain, well, what do we mean by the microbiome? And what are the kinds of diseases that disrupt the micro that we're talking about? We're talking about a disrupted microbiome. And I'll turn it over to Michelle because she can explain those things better than I can. What Vincent is referring to is now children, adult dogs are affected. What we're seeing are two main issues. There are more than two, believe me, but we focus on two and we go into it. We have two, a couple of chapters on the book. One is called a leaky gut or intestinal permeability. Mm -hmm. And the other is called dysbiosis or an imbalanced microbiome. So and let's go into some depth on what, on, for your listeners on what these two issues are, because most of us have it. And we'll explain why. Leaky gut. Normally we have these really tight junctions that line our intestine. Our intestines are not like a cement wall. Things have to pass like nutrients to feed our systems, our biologic systems. So there are these little kind of modulators um, modulated by this protein called zonulin that has, tells the cells when to open and shut based on what needs to pass. But what we now know that these little zonulin soldiers have been affected by um, GM food, genetically modified food, and pesticides, so that they're disrupted. And for many of us, they are leaking. So that proteins, for example, before they're incompletely broken down into their little molecules, are being passed in um, too big of a proteins. And this is one of the reasons why we think there are so many issues regarding, let's say, gluten sensitivity or gluten intolerance. These molecules are large. Our immune system, that is one cell away, sitting on the other side of this leaky gut, is seeing these, let's say, for example, large protein molecules as foreign invaders. And we're mounting an immune response response, um, which is then becomes something called inflammation. And it, when it goes on unresolved, that becomes chronic inflammation, which is one of the root causes of, of many of the disorders that we are seeing now. But what we have to appreciate is that many things are passing through our gut. Our gut begins with our mouth and ends with our tushy. That is the gut. People treat this like oral cavity as some dental issue. Oh, no, no, no. It's not a dental issue. This is the beginning of your gut. So many issues start here. So what also passes through air? Well, how about funky toxicants in like, you know, gas and, you know, paints and God knows what kids are putting in their mouths, art supplies. There are so many toxic things going in there. Pesticides, people are spraying at their homes. Not all pesticides come from the food. A lot of them are being sprayed in home gardens, right in the mouth. So all these things are passing as well. And this toxic soup is passing into our guts, our children, our dogs, and ourselves. There are no studies looking at the effects of the toxic chemical soup on health. We barely have enough on one chemical. We have over 80,000 chemicals now on the market. So now we have this passing. It causes chronic inflammation. It travels throughout our bloodstream. It can also go up our vagus nerve, the main nerve highway into our brains 
cause a leaky blood-brain barrier and get into our brains. Leaky gut, leaky brain. These are related, and we have a great kid in the book we talk about, one of my great patients, Vincent and I talk about. So that's leaky gut. The second thing that Vincent and I really go into a lot of depth, and boy, this is the front cutting edge of medicine, integrative and Western, is the microbiome. And the microbiome is the collection of organisms, bacterial, viral, fungal, that make up an organ in itself. We have many microbial uh, um, um, organisms in our gut that stay in an harmonious balance. These microbes are responsible for many functions in our body. And the biggest one that I would focus on right now is immune function. And without a healthy microbiome, your immune system can go astray, vitamin production goes astray, detoxification goes astray. And what we know is, and we'll get into this in a bit, that glyphosate, which is the main ingredient in Roundup, which is the most ubiquitously sprayed herbicide in the world, 700 compounds contain glyphosate, glyphosate-based herbicides, although there's a problem now going on, we can go into that later. And glyphosate is also an antibiotic patented by Monsanto, now Bayer. So there are disruptions happening. And so that disruption in the microbiome affects our immune function, our vitamin production, detoxification, and hence, this is how so many of us are starting life right now. And we have a very poor, um, inadequately um, robust microbiome, which is setting us up for later disasters. And there's a lot of good research on this now. So you did a ton of research into what might be out there that's trying to kill us. Now, what in that research did you find shocking or horrifying where you felt people need to know this and, and we need to be the mouthpiece for it? Share, share with our audience some of those shocking facts that you found out. Well, I can jump in with a couple that, I, that shocked me mm -hmm. right off the bat. And you know, the science on this is not very clear, but the fact that glyphosate was patented as an antibiotic early on in its use, it's not considered, it's not something that's been studied much to see what the actual impact is of having a ton of glyphosate ingested in our bodies and the impact that that might be having on our gut. Um, but there's a lot of, that is shocking to me to realize that that is the case, that it is an antimicrobial and so antibacterial. So, you know, the question of whether with you know, a lot of the, the, okay, the second thing that really shocked me was that the regulatory agencies have always relied on industry produced results in order to determine mm -hmm. whether to regulate a chemical or not. That was surprising to me. I mean, ignorant I was, but it was shocking to find out that they don't do their own studies. They also don't rely on research that's that is truly independent. So uh, there's a revolving door between a lot of these regulatory agencies and the companies. There's also a huge revolving door between the academic institutions that are doing this research and the companies that are paying for it. Monsanto was a huge um, player in all of this since the 1970s. And it certainly played a huge role in the ease with which these foods were brought in and not regulated because they were considered the equivalent to other foods that were generally recognized as safe foods. And we don't test all other foods. So they were grandfathered in or they were allowed in under that rubric. So the lack of actual testing on humans of these foods, which really aren't like other foods, mm -hmm. is, was shocking to me. Um, and the third thing I, I've been repeatedly shocked about is the 
degree to which the people who have done really good work in the science community to try to document what the impacts are of these foods on, in animal studies, mm -hmm. the degree to which they have been attacked and forced mm -hmm. out of their jobs and uh, uh, you know, whose reputations have been destroyed was really shocking to me. I, you know, I, I, again, I thought it was conspiracy theory and then I started reading about it and I realized, well, my God, what are they, you know, it's almost as if that is evidence in and of itself that there is some kind of corruption going on. And um, when you look at the kind of money that has been garnered by the agrochemical industries to produce not only the seeds, but also the herbicides and the fertilizers that go along with growing foods this way, it starts to all make sense. Um, you know, it, call it a conspiracy, but it's definitely a bit of a Gordian knot of control over this industry in ways that really couldn't risk having any bad press. And so, you know, and there are a lot of good books out on those, those politics. There's a great book by Kerry Gillum called Whitewash about the relationship between mm -hmm. Monsanto and in hiding truths about glyphosate. A great book by Stephen Drucker on the, the politics and the legal issues surrounding the regulatory processes and regulations around or lack of regulations around GM foods. And, and so, you know, I mean, this is part of why I was so motivated to, to help write this book as well. It's that the, you know, the missing piece in this whole story was around how given this whole set of arrangements around the politics, the regulatory agencies, the attacks on science, what wasn't becoming obvious was what actually is happening to people who are eating these things. And that's the piece that Michelle brought in, that she had this knowledge about, well, I've got this clinical evidence, and then we put it together with these stories from the lab and stories from the scientists who've been attacked and it kind of starts to make sense and one way it makes sense is as she said through studying what's happening in the gut um, you know i will say scientists don't know that much about the microbiome they are learning more every single day but we do know one basic thing and that is that the food you eat has a serious impact on your gut so if the food you're eating contains a lot of pesticides or things that are potentially harmful to your gut we should be worried about it. And to me, this all sounds so obvious. The fact that we need to do research to prove it itself to me is mind boggling. I mean, would it make sense that whatever you eat impacts your entire body, including the gut? Um, or the fact that if you're gonna spray something that kills insects, there's a high probability it's gonna hurt you too, because at the end of the day, we are insects too, people. Uh, you know, we, we, you can't be out there as someone was jokingly saying to me, you know, you can't screw nature and not expect to be screwed right back. And, and I thought, wow, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense, right? Um, we, we, we think we are above the law with respect to what we can do to what's around us and not be touched by it. But I think I, I was equally horrified when I read about the fact that recently there was another study out of MIT. There was an MIT researcher. I don't know if you're familiar with where I'm going with this, but uh, it was a study in autism. Mm -hmm. And there was a forecast of, I think one in three will be autistic in the next couple of decades. And there was such uh, a revolt against that information that that research study is now hard to find. There's, it's been difficult to get a hold of it. So there's so much pressure against people that are out there, the lone voice trying to be heard um, with the message of buyer beware, you as the consumer are a buyer, you need to beware and you need to be in charge of your own health and your child's health. Uh, and don't believe uh, what you're reading because this is all industry sponsored research. So 
thank you for coming out and sharing this, you know, very loudly. Uh, Michelle, anything to add to this? What, uh, what horrified and shocked you that you want our listeners and readers to viewers to see today? Um, Vincent did a great job. Um, in my viewpoint, some, there are so many things that have shocked me over the past 20, 30 years being in medicine. My biggest shock um, delving into this topic is that there are no studies on humans and the effects of GMOs, number one. Number two, that when, when these topics were first considered, both the genetically modified process and glyphosate, both were found to have carcinogenic potential and um, industry canned the research. We've known as early as 1983 that glyphosate uh, was carcinogenic. Um, the original researcher on GM, uh, Dr. Arpa Pusi, showed um, changes in the gut that were, were potential carcinogenic lead-ins, and his research was squelched immediately. And as Vincent already alluded to, what happened to scientists who um, dared to speak out and had concerns? Um, so this whole carcinogenic concept, um, and then when, when the IARC through the World Health Organization announced glyphosate as a carcinogen class 2A in March of 2015, that the wrath of industry fell upon them and how there was a well-crafted response to bring them down, which has come out now through Carrie's work, um, as you heard in Whitewash, and with the recent trial against Monsanto here in San Francisco a few weeks ago, um, 2018. This idea that um, labeling uh, for scientists who are concerned to label us as anti-science and the manipulation regarding that by industry is very concerning. It has literally um, created like uh, sealed our mouths shut with duct tape mm -hmm. because there are so many people who are afraid to speak out for fear of their careers, their families, or their own lives, which is shocking that we no longer can speak out. And this idea that we should not be practicing the precautionary principle that children, the universe, bees, or your dog are not of concern, that profit has trumped um, uh, health is, you know, as a practitioner, I can tell you, it's always shocking when profits trump health and that our children are so undervalued that we would bring this stuff forward and the worldwide devastation that has been caused for in name of profit, the idea to you cannot patent food, but you can patent a seed, and that industry wanted to own food production. It's so nefarious, it sounds so conspiracy provoking, but in my own lifetime, this is what I have come to the conclusion. But I would also say that Vincent and I do it and I could not do this any longer if I didn't see the strength, wisdom, courageousness of women. I say mostly women because those were my people. I see mostly moms. I, dads are out there. Hello, dads. But uh, the women are, mm -hmm. are battling this. That if it wasn't for these moms fighting this battle, I'm not so sure I would have continued because they are so strong, so ferocious, fighting for their offspring, for their kids that they enable us to keep doing what we do because of the strength of their character. And it is the moms, in my opinion, even though I keep saying I wanna get the dads involved, who are gonna change this conversation. I couldn't agree more. As a mother of two teenagers, I feel outraged, but I also feel helpless and I feel confused and I feel frozen in terms of, well, what do I do? Where do I start? Because the, the groundwork that you've laid in terms of sharing the, the critical information, which translates into basically anything that's a genetically modified 
crop or a grain uh, or a food item, as well as anything that's been sprayed with glyphosate, is toxic. It's going to hurt me, it's gonna hurt my baby, and if I'm gonna get pregnant, then it's gonna hurt my, my fetus. So where do we start? Because there's so much misinformation out there. You know, who do you believe? And then there's, of course, uh, confusion because, you know, on one side you'll read something and then with another very well-known, renowned health um, speaker, you'll hear a different perspective right on glyphosate, right? Is it good? Is it bad? I, you're right. You can Google and find both sides on the same page one of Google. So where should a mother who either has sick children and she's trying to get them well or is worried about her child falling sick, what can she do today, starting right now? Okay, so I think Vincent and I can both agree that if we just create doctors doom and gloom here, we've done nothing. If we create a level neurosis, a frozen mother syndrome, then we've done nothing. This situation is fixable. Children get better. 90% of my patients got better. There were some issues, you know, you can't... Mm -hmm. But majority of kids get better because the body has an innate ability to heal itself if you give it the right tools. So let's just start there, that people do get better. So what can moms do? And hopefully dads, please step behind your wife. Don't argue with them. <laughs> Thank you for saying that because I know at least uh, a few families where the father is fighting the battle against doing what we would call integrative medicine. Right, right here in my own house. Um, my husband won't take his shoes off at the door and he still oh. sneaks junk food into his closet. I'm sorry, honey, I just threw my husband under the bus. But um, okay, number one is buy organic food and Vincent can go into a whole course that she's setting up to do more than that. If we just start with organic, if people can feed their children organic, I know we know about the expenses and moms and dads and children having to get into the kitchen. This is not just mom's job, by the way, of getting in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. We have to get off processed foods. We have to get cooking again. And we have to uh, really understand the need for organics. I tell people, do that. It may take a month. It could take six months. It could take a year. Don't beat yourself up. You make mistakes. You may have bad days. It's okay. It's a journey. We are in a health healing journey. It's not one day, you know, that room was built. Number two, can they get a simple or more uh, complicated water filter? I believe in filtering the water. Mm -hmm. And three, um, if they can reduce the toxic load that Vincent was referring to before, the, the cleaning products, their personal care products, you know, all that and the house, if they can decrease the load so kids aren't so toxic, so they don't have such a toxic allostatic load that they have to keep off their shoulders, we can help kids just ease the burden of toxicity. You know, let their little bodies heal themselves. So uh, decrease the load, and I would say, if you can, take your shoes off at the door because one of the most toxic things in your house is house dust and all that stuff you're bringing in and the dog and everybody else. And so um, that is a guideline for people to start and look and see what happens to your own kids. Do that for at least a month. People say, oh, I did it three days. There's no change. Whoa, 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 whoa. It takes some time to get the body back healing. And then there are other things we do, like probiotics, multivitamins, et cetera. And then we start to layer in. But those are the basics. And they're doable. 
they're very, very doable. You know, I had, uh, for those of you who've heard me before, you know, I had colon cancer at 35 and an autoimmune crisis 10 years, uh, at 45, 10 years later. And um, I had to do everything you just mentioned, Michelle, and more. And yes, it was a 15 month journey, but guess what? I reversed every one of those 28 symptoms. And I am healthier today than I ever was. So, but what I also realized is that um, when I got healthy and I sort of got back into eating a little bit of junk food and processed foods and packages, because that's human nature, right? We're, we're lazy at the core. So if we don't need to do something, we don't. I went right back to having a leaky gut. So to me, I've been a personal experiment of one, proving that when you take things out, you can perfectly heal. But if you bring it all back right in, you can go back to being sick again. So it works. It's doable. It's very doable. And in fact, for those of you who are listening in, we are going to be offering a three-day free boot camp just to help you ease your way into the process. And then if you'd like to continue, there'll of course be a longer, longer boot camp. But I just want you to know that we are here at Health Boot Camps to help you make this transition. Children should not be sick. Children should be out there playing, having fun, living their life, their youth, not visiting hospitals. Um, with that, I want to ask you another question. So as a parent, I've heard this, now I'm going to go to my doctor. And my doctor is going to say what? Okay. Most, right? What? Go ahead, Vincent. Yeah, well, my doctor? I was going to say, so the take home, I mean, first of all, you say, what can we do about it? Well, buy the book, please. Yes. Read the book. You'll yes. arm yourself. We wrote the book as a resource for people like you who need to be able to convince others that there might be something going on here that they should pay attention to. You know, the, the, the people who roll their eyes when you say, oh, I only eat organic or who do, the doctors who say there's nothing true about leaky gut. So give them a copy of the book as well. Buy one for yourself, one for them. But you know, we do spend this a fair amount of time in the book. Uh, at the end, we, we end on a positive note in that we look at different ways in which we could think about attacking this problem. One is we take our hats off to the moms. We call them warrior moms, as you've both talked about, the ones who are there in the trenches. Generally, more women are taking care of their kids than husbands. Husbands who are doing it, we take our hats off to them too, but they are not only fighting the fight in their home, sometimes at their schools, sometimes in their own families against the indulgences of grandparents who don't believe there's anything to worry about when they feed them packaged and sugared and you know GM foods. Um, but we also then move beyond that to talk about how we really need to, to convince um, the reluctant constituencies. And by these people, I would say the scientists and doctors who really don't know that much about this topic, but who have jumped on board the bandwagon of reading it as a conspiracy. And so to that end, we say we really need to get these people to pay more attention to the evidence that's out there and to really think about this in a new way. And finally, and here's where I do see more men involved, uh, you know, this is not just an issue of clinical care or of household kitchen habits and eating habits. This is a global problem, and it has to do with climate change as well. We know there's plenty of evidence that organic farming reduces the carbon load. It produces healthier foods. And there are debates within the organic community as well around whether it's standard industrial organic or whether it's regenerative farming. Of course, the best is regenerative farming that packs the soil full of nutrients and reduces the carbon footprint. But those, that is also why we need to be on board with the organic bandwagon. And we need the government to subsidize it instead of subsidizing Monsanto. So, you know, we do try to reach all those levels. We talk about this thing in the book called eco-medicine, 
which is an approach to medicine, health, and planetary survival that connects up the, all these pieces into an entire ecosystem and thinks about you know, the, the saving of the planet by way of organic foods and not just the saving of our guts. And we can't actually have healthy guts unless we have healthy soil. So um, all those things are part of the story as well. And, you know, that there is also a resource page at the back of the book for people who are interested in getting involved in activist efforts. That makes a lot of sense. Now, how is your practice different from other practices that are out there that take care of children? Michelle? So my clinical practice, um, the, the way I do it is, you know, it, uh, Rena is I take a very long intake. It, it could take an hour and a half to do an intake. Most of the kids I see are complex, chronically ill children um, and, and their families because you wind up seeing mom or dad or grandma eventually. So um, it's a long interview and the, um, the history also often begins prenatally. What was mom exposed to? What was dad exposed to? And genetic patterns and epigenetic patterns. So all that has to be filtered in. And this really matters, particularly in terms of homeopathy, you know, because we treat the state of mom during the pregnancy, you know, and before. And so these are all factored in. We also, we do a lot of dietary history and a, and a lot of very specific stooling history and um, infancy history and sibling relationship history and how is a child doing socially all these things are factored in um i do you know the way um i'm looking for very different things on the physical exam when i even do work in urgent care which is what i do now i'm a pediatric emergency physician by training i like acute care i'm just shocked how many people tell me um our doctor never even examined my kid I hear that it's just shocking, you know, mm -hmm. just to physically examine children. And I'm looking at the usual things. Your doctor checks your ears and your throat and your lungs and your, your tummy and all that. But I'm also looking for signs of nutrient deficiencies and toxicity. I'm looking at hair quality. I'm looking at the quality of the tongue. I'm looking at the nails. Um, and many Western practitioners, we are not trained in tongue and nail assessments, mm -hmm. by the way, mm -hmm. such as with, um, you know, oftentimes in um, Eastern medicine, there, there's a lot of um, on tongue, nails, pulses, etc. That's right. Um, and then the, the labs are different. I use a functional medicine approach, um, it, and I look at the usual routine battery of labs that we do in Western medicine. But in addition, I'm looking for food antibodies. I'm looking at the microbiome. I'm looking at markers of inflammation. I'm doing nutrient levels, toxin and toxicant levels. And then I'm looking for things that are often um, debated in Western medicine, although I can't even figure out why, such as chronic infection, like Lyme disease, um, Epstein-Barr virus, um, et cetera, et cetera, herpes, CMB, um, Bartonella, you pick it. I'm looking for those infections as to why. And then I'm looking, um, in addition, into what's in the home. You know, we ask parents to take pictures of what's in their pantry, you know, what's in their cleaning closet. Let's see what you got. So it's a very more holistic, find the root cause. We don't treat the symptoms. It's a, a biologic systems-based approach. And it's based on um, functional medicine, integrative medicine, holistic medicine. There are many terms to express this. Um, and then we as integrative practitioners have a very expansive toolbox that we use. I, I often will use some drugs, um, but I really prefer homeopathic remedies, herbs, a lot of supplements, mind-body techniques, and a lot of manipulative types of medicine, such as a 
cranial osteopathy, Reiki, acupressure, um, uh, biofeedback, um, uh, hypnosis, or whatever that child may need. There are many ways to heal children. There is not one way to do it. There are many ways. So these are some of the ways that we um, assess a kid and we proceed with healing. Parents are the main doers of these complicated protocols. We try to keep it simple. It can get a little complicated. It can get a little expensive, which I am not happy about. And people have to be in for the long haul. This is not a two-week program. These programs can take months to get kids reversed. So parents have to be willing to be participants, um, change, make changes. As you said, kids will relapse. If parents have made the uh, fundamental changes like in diet, they will relapse and go in for the long, this is a long game, not a short game. Well, it's a game to live a long life healthily, right? Yes. And, and that's what parents don't understand. <laughs> oh, right, health, that's right. Right, this, the goal isn't just to be healthy for two weeks. The, the goal is to be healthy for life and to live a long life. And for the first time ever last year, um, as you know, we, we, we saw a drop in uh, longevity in the United States. So it's, uh, it's clearly something that I think everyone needs to be thinking of is as a parent, how fiercely are you protecting your child? And next, how fiercely are you protecting your family, your spouse, yourself? Because if you're sick, then of course, um, who's going to take care of the family, right? So that becomes obvious when you fall sick, as I did. There are children who are healthy and who don't show symptoms. And I think you talk a little bit about why parents of even seemingly healthy children need to read your book, need to take charge. Share a little bit about that. So that you can have some things that are um, brewing and have no clinical manifestations or very mild symptoms that everybody writes off constipation, occasional bloaty tummy, um, not so nice smelling gas, little soft symptoms. And if we can correct those early, and those are the kids who are often just corrected by diet, the kids who really don't have significant pathology yet with organ issues and that just have simpler disruptions, which are more easily reversed. Those kids are some of my favorites because when you change just some of their diets or give them some simple things like probiotics, those kids reverse easily. So when you can recreate a healthy terrain, and remember, Rena, this is what we're trying to do. We are trying to recreate a terrain that is healthy and supports better health and gives the body the tools it needs to do the systems it knows how to do. That's all we're trying to do. If the terrain is unhealthy and that usually resides around the cells, it's called the extracellular matrix. And that's what we try to clean out. Kids have a less risk of developing these issues later on. Mm -hmm. Many diseases take a long time to develop like cancer, like autoimmune disease. So we can set this healthy terrain, give the kids the tools they need to stay healthier and they do better. Parents, ask the parent. And what I tell parents is, you judge. If you don't believe me, you be the end of one, do the experiment at home, and come back to me in three months and let me know how it goes. That sounds great. Constipation's a good example. So if someone, if there's a child who has constipation, you mentioned a really good one, which is the child's born almost constipated to some extent. What do you typically recommend as a protocol? Is it probiotics? What else do you do? Are there tests involved? And if so, what kind of tests? It's just a big question, Rena, and you know it goes into some specifics because it depends on the age of the child, how they're being fed, where they live, mother's health history. But if you're talking infancy, 
um, the first thing you do is ask the mother what she's eating um, and you correct the mom's diet. Um, if the baby's actually eating, you give foods that are more fibrous, more water. If that doesn't correct it, the first line I'll bring in is homeopathic remedies. Simple, one single remedies, and I have about 15 that I might use for constipation and see if the kid will get reversed with just one simple remedy. If that doesn't do it, I'll bring in more complex remedi remedies based on something called German biologic medicine. Um, and if that doesn't do it, I'll start running tests. So the idea is simple first, correct what's obvious, start digging deeper, if, and you might have to start digging to get to a root cause. If things don't simply correct, you haven't gotten to the root cause. I love it. You are amazing, Michelle and Vincent. Last question. So mother listening to you, what is the first thing you want her to go do right now? to fix her child. <laughs> I think so, Vincent, Vincent by the book. Um, if, if I could give a mom, if I say, if there's one thing you could do, they say, give me the one thing to do. Yes, right now. Uh, right now, I'd say from now on in, every time you go into the uh, supermarket, the grocery store, wherever you shop, is to look for the organic option. If you could just do that, if you are going to buy organic eggs or non-organic, if you could just simply make those changes one by one, that would be my wish. Beautiful. Beautiful. And I'll share one, which is if you think it's too expensive, go to Costco. It is not expensive. I go to Costco. I get my organic berries and eggs and, and, and milk and so much more. And it is not that much more. It's pennies more or maybe sometimes even the exact same price as what a non-organic food item might cost. Thank Arena, you so much. And let yes. me, I don't mean to interrupt you, but and I'll let Vincent speak, but also doctors like us often don't take health insurance and we're way more expensive than those eggs. And if little Johnny or little Susie is homesick, uh, 10, 20, 28 days a year, like my son was 28 days a year, mom or dad is missing work. Yes. And if you factor in the amount of time that parents miss from work, staying home with a sick kid, it will compensate for those organic free range eggs. Oh, absolutely. Thousand times over, thousand times over. Just the fact that you won't have a kid that has to go to the hospital a lot more. You'll save in all those prescription drugs where the prices keep going up. It, clearly one of those old adages, right? A um, shoe in time, what was that? And I'll edit this part about what the, Stitch in time saves nine, sort of, right? That very old adage that I grew up with, stitch in time saves nine, perfectly applies to this. Do what's right now so you're not going to be having incredibly large expenses later on in life. But more importantly, much more importantly for a mother, seeing your child smiling versus seeing your child upset, angry, depressed, anxious in the hospital getting tests. There's just, there's no money. There's nothing that's so expensive that, is, is not worth seeing your child smile. So with that said, Michelle Vincent, thank you so much for writing this book. It truly is an eye-opener. We're gonna be putting the links to the book in the show notes, everyone. Please, please read the book. We will be launching a three-day free bootcamp to help you parents out there transition into uh, keeping your child's healthier. Please check it out. And of course, as always, stay smiling. Thank you, Rena. That's a wrap. Share your love with a five-star review and get show notes at healthbootcamps.com. Connect with us on Health Bootcamps Facebook and Twitter. Also, don't forget to check out other great interviews and subscribe to the Get Healthier podcast today.